Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and thanks for listening to this episode of The Andy Rowe Show. Matt Griffin is the world's leading advisor on what's going to happen in the future when it comes to technology. He's an advisor to the UK government and many other major nations. Think about all the biggest tech firms in the world, Samsung, Huawei, Microsoft. Well, he advises those guys on where the future is headed. You're going to hear about what crazy technology is already here and what technology is just around the corner. I hope you enjoy the episode. Joining me now is the world's most renowned futurist. His clients include G7 and G20 governments, some of the biggest tech and media companies on the planet. Matthew Griffin, thank you very much for coming on the show. Hey, Andy. Nice to be here. Let's just set the scene first. For those people that don't know what a futurist is what is and what is futurism, can you sort of give us a quick rundown on what it is that you do and, yeah, and, sure. and why you're advising such big companies? Yeah, sure. So a, a futurist, basically, in a nutshell, is somebody that looks at the future. Um, now, that sounds fairly obvious, but you kind of have two different types of futurists. You've got futurists that look at the near future and others that try to look into the deeper future. Um, and the reason why we might want to do some of these things is that so that we can prepare different aspects of culture, business and society for the things that are coming down the line. Um, yeah, we're all fairly aware, I see that today the rate of disruption is accelerating. You know, if you look back 10 years ago, what we could do, um, it's very different to what we're able to do as a global society today. And if you accelerate that out again, say to 2030, the things that we'll be able to do in 2030 will make 2020 look sort of relatively pale by comparison. What do you mean the, the rate of disruption? What's that? Um, so what I mean by that is um, the rate at which you can disrupt something where something is either a part or the whole of, for example, global culture, um, industry, so different industry sectors, um, or from a government perspective, uh, different sort of investment strategies right so it's basically a big change in any situation yeah yeah it's it's a so disruption is kind of defined as a change as a dramatic change from the status quo right um right. and you can think about say for example a very quick example of disruption uh, is the smartphone uh the internet you know they were drastically different to what came before and they they enacted a change at a global scale when you look at technology, I think there's a term called technological singularity. Now, I've read that, yeah. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> but that's when technology starts to get away on us, essentially, isn't it? Can you tell me about that, about what that means and where are we at when it comes to technological singularity? Break it down for the layman. Yeah, so so the technological singularity is a phrase that was originally coined by Ray Kurzweil, who's a futurist over in the US who now works for Google. Um, it's supposed to arrive roughly 2045, and it's 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 a phrase that's used to describe the coming together of uh, 
humans with technology. So in other words, combining humans with technology where technology becomes part of us humans, um, but also vice versa, where we become part of technology. Um, hence the word singularity. And it's a, it seems to be on track at the moment. And that's again, a whole variety, there's a whole bunch of different conversations in there as well. So when you're looking about coming a part of technology and technology becoming a part of you, are you talking about downloading your brain and things like that? Is that and 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 immortality and living forever? Like how how does it all work and, and where are we at with that? Yeah. So okay, you want to go down the wormhole. Um, so on the one hand, when we have a look at where we are with downloading people's brains or really memories or experiences and that kind of stuff. Um, Last year, a, an organization in the US managed to create what they call a neural prosthetic. It's really designed to be a digital slash biological interface to help Alzheimer's patients regain some of their memory function. Um, so on the one hand, basically this sort of little gizmo basically was sort of quite interesting because uh, it boosted brain function and the ability to recall and, mem and remember things by about 30%. Um, however, because it is a biological to digital, essentially converter, it's a prosthetic, but it's essentially a converter, um, you can use it to download their memories and store their memories. So that's already happening. Um, that's already, yeah, so that's already happening. So again, there's, that's at a very, very basic level. There's always a very long journey from here to you know, the, the future, um, but that's already actually possible. Um, so, as with any sort of technology, it typically starts out small, very expensive. Um, it typically ends up being sort of really quite niche, but as it gets more and more developed, um, its performance increases, it miniaturizes, it just becomes better at what it does. So what we have today is you can kind of think of this neural prosthetic as, um, as it's kind of like the first car. It's like the Model T Ford. You know, it's a little bit rickety. Doesn't go very far. You know, if you looked at it with today's eyes, you wouldn't be particularly impressed. Um, you know, you'd raise an eyebrow, but you know, you'd sort of go, "That's cute. Yeah, that's quaint." However, you know, as these technologies accelerate and accelerate and accelerate, you know, in about twenty years' time, uh, that will be a much, much better piece of technology. And certainly, when we start talking about memory technologies, a lot of them tend to start in the healthcare space. Uh, because we want to be able to use things like brain machine interfaces to read people's minds. So, for example, if you look at paralyzed patients and patients with ALS syndrome, um, they are unable to communicate in a normal way. So if you can put a skull cap onto an ALS patient or put a pair of smart glasses onto an ALS patient, bearing in mind that we've already miniaturized some of this brain reading technology into glasses, as well as smart tattoos, which you can apply to the backs of their heads, just like a kid's transfer sticker. Um, you can start reading their brain waves using artificial intelligence to understand what they're thinking about and then communicate what they're thinking about to a screen. Now, whether that's picture form, sentences, text, when you have a look at different uh, DNA computing platforms up at the uh, University of Manchester, uh, we actually now see a path. And again, these are all very, very early stages, but we see a path to turning a human into a biological supercomputer. As technology gets more and more sophisticated and advanced, you know, typically we still think of computing devices as being the things that are in our hands and on our desks. That's a computer as far as everybody is concerned. 
Um, but when we actually have a look at how we are able to reinvent computing and, and create new types of computer platforms, there are a huge number of new computer platforms coming through. So you have biological computing, which is where biological organisms themselves are the computing device. So in your computer, you have a traditional CPU. It's just a silicon. This is just a piece of fancy silicon, really, with a bunch of transistors on it. By tweaking the DNA and the genome of E. coli bacteria, we can replicate the functions of that CPU in a in a bacteria, in a living organism. So the living organism on the one hand is now the computing device. So when we talk about computing, we talk typically about computer processing. With an E. coli bacteria last year, we were able to, on the one hand, turn it into a computing device. But on the other hand, we were able to store a YouTube video in its DNA and then replay that YouTube video onto a traditional computer screen what and this is and this is sort of where i typically describe technology what we can do with technology as a rocket ship if you think of every single science fiction thing that you see in every single science fiction movie most of that stuff is already in the labs you know i have videos of this stuff so whether it's genuine holograms like the ones that we see in blade runner 2049 with the dancing ballerina whether it's being able to stream your thoughts directly to your YouTube channel. So rather than telling me about your holiday, we can put on skull caps, and these are coming out of the US as well as Russia. Um, I can put on skull caps, and you can simply just think about your holiday, and it will stream it in very, very poor quality. It's got to be said, but again, it will stream your thoughts in image form directly to YouTube or any way that you want it, frankly. Um, so uh, deflector shields, um, deflector shield. So if you want to like, yeah. you know, if there's a military compound, it's got a deflector shield on it that you can't see, but when you shoot at it, it bounces off. So today, because we're, again, we're at the beginning of deflector shields, um, British aerospace a little while ago, basically put out a, or oh, they actually did an experiment. Um, if you fire a laser at the upper earth's atmosphere, you create something called a Fermi lens effect. And a Fermi lens effect essentially does this. If I fire a laser at you, then this Fermi lens effect will deflect that laser. So incredibly basic. Think generation 0.01 deflector shield. Um, and at the moment, basically, they're up in the stratosphere and everything else, uh, as opposed to sort of, you know, being something that we can sort of put around our car or our uh, Klingon, Klingon vessel if we wanted to. But deflector shields, you know, again, the proof of concepts are already here. So if we go back to the, the major emerging technologies that are on the way, what are we saying that's, that's here now or that's not that far away that you, you're thinking is, um, is the next big thing? Uh, so artificial intelligence is is the ultimate game changer. And uh, it, I mean, obviously it does. It's a huge conversation basically in itself. Some of the things that excite me most about artificial intelligence is if you think about Google back in the early 2000s, Google democratized access to information. You, know, you want to know anything on the planet, look it up. Basically, and within what, five seconds, you can generally have some form of an answer. 
So that's why we talk about the democratization of information. With artificial intelligence, aside from doing the billions of different things that it can already do, one of the most exciting areas is when you combine artificial intelligence with the internet, you start unlock, unlocking and democratizing access to expertise. By using artificial intelligence and a Microsoft platform called DeepCoder, um, if I today do not have the skills to develop an application because I'm not a programmer or a, or a developer, um, using artificial intelligence, I can talk to the computer. So that's using natural language processing. The computer understands basically what I want to do. So I can say, build me an application that looks like Microsoft Word, for example. So it understands what I want to do, what the application should do, the features that it should have and all that sort of stuff. That particular artificial intelligence will go off, scavenge code from a variety of different places, bring it back together, compile it, and then say, is this the application that you wanted me to build? So someone is saying to the AI, I need this, and then that program will go onto the internet, teach itself how to find this or create this, and then come back with the answer and the product so well so sort of so i mean yeah you love sport i love sport so why don't we use a sporting example under armor recently used a creative artificial intelligence to develop an architect sneaker what they did is they fed the information that they wanted this ai to know and they fed what they wanted this ai to produce into the ai so for example they said we want you to build a new running train or we want you to design a new running trainer for humans go and design one so and this is where it's not this you shouldn't look at individual technologies you should look at combinations of technologies because again that artificial intelligence had to understand what they meant by design me a trainer you know it's like what is a trainer you know who's it for you know what are the what's the, what are the features and functionality basically that this should have what should it be made out of you know there's all these different things these ais have to sort of be able to understand what it did is this artificial intelligence ran tens of thousands of different simulations and different designs per minute and eventually after about six hours it came up with a new design um and when they actually had a look at the trainer it looked a little bit odd. You can actually buy these architect sneakers for about $300 off their website now. Um, but when you, look at the, when you look at the sole of the sneaker, um, it looked like there were lots of snakes just wrapped around each other. And the designers were like, well, what the heck's that? You know, that's, they'd never seen a sole like this. Um, and when they started querying the artificial intelligence to try to figure out why it had designed the, the sole of this sneaker in the way that it had. It had actually used nature for inspiration. So it had understood what a human was. And if you think about us humans, the vast majority of us are tall and thin. When you have a look at nature, what else is tall and thin? Trees. And uh, if you have a look at how trees stand up, they use roots. So what this AI had done is it had kind of figured, well, if I want to design a good running trainer um, for these humans who are tall and relatively skinny, perhaps, um, I should design a sole that resembles tree roots. And when Under Armour went and tested this new sneaker, it performed better than anything else that they designed. Wow. And then furthermore, um, 
this three this sneaker basically was 3d printable so in under armor's case now when we talked about the speed of disruption a little bit earlier this is another example of that if you went to under armor today traditionally and said design me a sneaker uh, from concept to shelf it would normally take them about 18 months um this thing took under a week going back to an earlier point you mentioned about mind reading and technology where you can put on a skull cap and then the image of whatever you're thinking maybe your holiday can appear on a, on a, on a computer screen am i right in thinking that the new york police department have a similar bit of technology that they're using to identify suspects so you are in you are to a degree so uh, when we have a look at police um there are actually two rather strange pieces of technology that the blue light services are actually using to try to identify suspects the first is as you quite rightly say um, the new york police department about two years ago started experimenting with using brain reading devices um, you can think of them as skull caps with artificial intelligence uh, as a companion to help victims of crime think about the person who mugged them and then do a digital composite of their face. So as opposed to having a sketch artist, I just say to you, think of the person, think of the person who mugged you, focus in on their face, and then that gets translated onto the computer screen. Um, with the New York Police Department, they've been finding that that's about 80% accurate. It's relatively fuzzy. You know, we're not talking about high definition photo fits by any stretch of the imagination, but um, they are actually working. Um, the other very odd piece of technology, since we're sort of going down this path, um, is New York Police Department, as well as Chicago, as well as certain European police departments as well, um, have started using what they call DNA profiling. Now, we typically think of DNA profiling as a, a suspect leaves some DNA at the, at the scene of the crime. We gather it and then we can, then provided we can find them, you know, we can prove that they did the crime. Um, increasingly, what we're able to do, again, using artificial intelligence, basically, as kind of the, 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 the sort of the, the nexus point, is doing photo fits of people from their DNA. Wow. So you've got someone's DNA and you're able to say, you're able to put it into a computer and it creates the person. Yeah. Now, again, it, does, it doesn't do a brilliant job. But if you think about all of the different ethnicities that we have on the planet, people of different color have particular genes that say you're a white person, you're a black person, you're Chinese, you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, you're a man, you're a woman, uh, you're this height, you've got this, you've, you've got this eye color, this hair color. What about looking at um, something that everyone's got as a, most people have got as a mobile phone, right? What, what are the biggest innovations coming there? Because you have quite a bit to do with Huawei, don't you? Yeah, yeah well, Huawei and Samsung. So uh, if anyone knows who they are. I'm sure, I'm sure they might. Yeah, so when I work with Huawei, basically, and Samsung, I typically work to 2070. So when you say you're looking at, you're looking at where phones are going up to 2070. Up to 2070, right. yeah. Um, and the reason, basically, why those two organizations typically look up to 2070 is, in Samsung's case, that's their centennial. Um, in Huawei's case, uh, Huawei typically spend about $14 billion a year on innovation. They have about 45,000 people focused on R&D. Um, but both organizations are 
are pretty well terrified basically of being disrupted. So what they do basically is they sort of go out, gather a whole variety of different opinions. And with Samsung, for example, you know, we did a, a report called KX50, which you can sort of Google and look up and that goes into all sorts of different odd things. Um, but what they try to do is they try to get as, as great a view of the future as they can. Then they try to quantify it, figure out what's real, what's not real, what's interesting, what's not interesting, and they start filtering it. Um, and then they start putting it into roadmaps and then we sort of go from there. Now, when we have a look at today's sort of current greatest, uh, greatest and latest uh, innovations in the smartphone world, um, ironically, when you go and ask the vast majority of people what they want in their next smartphone, it's greater battery life. So Samsung are using graphene in their batteries now, uh, which means that some of the next generations of phones will last up to 500% longer. When we have a look at the format, the biggest problem that we have moving from today's smartphone black tablet format to the thing that comes next is the screen. The biggest problem that we have moving away from today's smartphone format isn't that we don't have alternative display technologies, it's that culturally, do you really want something beamed into your eyes? Do you want to always have to put on some smart glasses? Do you always want to have to display your images on a on a on the back of a bus? You know, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a Black Mirror episode where they had, I think they had computer eyes. Like they had replaced their eyes with computers that they looked like normal eyes, but all it meant was that they could fast forward, rewind situations and it was played straight into their mind. And so that was their phone. That was everything. Everything was through their eyes um, yeah. and, and they, they didn't need a device. Were you just saying that that's pretty much here already? Yeah. So again, basic. So um, if we go down the smart contact route, there's a company called Mojo Vision who has built augmented reality into a, into a pair of contact lenses. Um, and that's exactly as it sounds. You put the contact lenses in and you now have access to augmented reality worlds. But in order to start really uh, realizing uh, smart contact lenses, you've got to do a huge amount of testing. Um, so, for example, here's a fun little fact. Uh, some of the first smart contact lenses use it, used something called a thin film battery because they need power. Um, when they tested those smart contact lenses on cows, uh, cows' eyeballs, they found basically that the energy source they were using for these smart contact lenses was cooking the eyeball. You don't want that as a human. So we are now at the point where we have a seemingly have a viable smart contact lens. And then, of course, the next thing is you increase the resolution, you increase the battery life you make it more user-friendly and all these sorts of things. And that's an innovation problem. On a Black Mirror episode, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer to movies and, and programs that yeah. I've watched. On a Black Mirror episode, there was one that was, I think it was called the Christmas special where they downloaded, um, you could download your mind into, the purpose of it was that you could create the perfect PA. So the PA would be your mind downloaded onto a little egg-shaped device and it knew everything you liked everything you wanted but it, essentially it was you that was in there and yeah. that was there's a moral conundrum there but that technology regardless how far away is that and is that kind of already happening um so we've got very very basic prototypes like the neural prosthetic um but in terms of 
uh, shall we say, listeners being able to go to a go to a shop uh, or go online or just blink and think uh, and uh, have these devices all of a sudden turn up at their doorstep via their local you know, self-driving courier service. Um, we are still really 20 plus years away. Those technologies are developing really relatively quickly. And the reason why they're developing relatively quickly is particularly thanks to organizations like the US military. Um, because, for example, with the US military, DARPA, as well as a whole variety of different organizations over in the US, about three years ago, were able to upload knowledge to people's minds. So if we, if you know um, The Matrix, uh, is a, a sci-fi fan, if you know The Matrix, basically where Trinity needs to learn how to fly a helicopter, you know, she essentially just sort of steps into her mind where she goes, you know, QE, uh, you know, load me up. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, she gets back into the, so yeah, the, the, the matrix world and she knows how to fly a, heli a Huey helicopter. Um, they've managed to do that basically with F-35 fighter jets. Hang on a minute. They've managed to do that with fighter jets. Well, so, so, so people can learn how to fly a fighter jet. Yeah. So, okay. So by we're downloading the information like on the matrix. When you have a look at the human brain, basically, this is really an area of neuroscience. Um, the human brain basically is one of the most complex things in the, in the known and un, probably unknown universe. Um, and we are still really quite uh, in the early stages of unlocking its secrets. Um, so this is the field of neuroscience. Um, when we have a look at modeling the human brain, we can currently model about 1% of the human brain. How far, how, how long until they can simulate a whole brain? Uh, so it looks like about a year. Um, and when we start having a look at, uh, for example, the F-35 fighter jets, about three years ago, um, DARPA, the US military, and a couple of other sort of private sector organizations um, put 30 of the US's best fighter pilots into an F-35 simulator. They took the F-35s up to about 25,000 feet, and they put the F-35s into a flat spin, and they said to the pilots, uh, you need to now land these planes. So flat spins, very hard to get out of. The pilots had skull caps on. And while the pilots were trying to land the planes and get these planes out of a flat spin, um, their brainwaves were being read and being processed by an artificial intelligence just outside, the, sitting outside the simulator. Um, those pilots came out and they all managed to land the, the, the aircraft successfully. They then got 30 volunteers who'd never ever been in an aircraft and said, right, you know, um, we want you to uh, fly this plane and we want you to land it out of a flat spin. Um, they took the F-35s up to 25,000 feet again, put them into a flat spin and 60% of the people landed the planes. And the way they landed the planes is the US military replayed brainwaves from the Top Gun pilots to the volunteers and the volunteers were able to land the planes. Now, the volunteers that didn't land the planes, uh, when they started having a look into that, uh, they simply didn't have the, the quick enough tactile responses to, uh, to manage the controls. So looking at mobile phones in five years' time, what, 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 that are on the shelves, or even three updates' time, what are they, they, they going to look like, do you think? Do you think they're going to be reading our minds or...? No, so, so I, I, personally, I think this. So today, if you want to record your child's birthday party, you know, it's a very special event, you know, you want to record it for posterity, um, you start the video 
on your uh, smartphone and you video it in the way, much in the way basically that we have for the past 50, 60, 70 years. Um, once we start including something called a depth of field sensor into the camera on your smartphone, um, what I can now do is when I'm actually recording the child's party, just like the human eye, the smartphone is recording depth information. Apple recently released one, but it's got LiDAR. Um, that's a very interesting new technology because what I can do is when I'm doing a video of my, of my child's party, the camera is taking all of this depth information and then using an artificial intelligence, it can convert that information straight into virtual reality. So when you go and buy your first or next virtual reality headset from wherever you want to buy it from, rather than watching a two relatively two-dimensional video playback of your child's party, you can be at your child's party. So, so on that, let's say I wanted to be at a niece or nephew's birthday party on the other side of the world. Will there be technology where I could be there but have my virtual reality glass, sunglasses on or whatever they are and I could be in the room and they could see me and I could see them and it was like I was there? Yeah, in real time, because it's, it's a 5G networks, broadband, it's real time. Um, so, and that's one of the benefits that 5G will bring, by the way, by see is speed and it will actually open up this new world of virtual reality possibilities. But when we start talking about VR headsets and glasses, today, a virtual reality headset is a big, fat, clunky thing that you slap on your face uh, and it makes you look socially awkward. In 10 years time, you just either click on your smart contact lens uh, or you put on your smart glasses. And yes, you can be at the your kid's party in New Zealand. If we want to go one further, because on the one hand, you can be a passive observer at your, ch at, the, at your kid's birthday party, but you want to be able to give your relatives a hug. Um, if we use a haptic suit, like some of the suits from Tesla, uh, you could put on haptic clothing. And haptic clothing allows you to feel uh, different sensations. So, for example, if you put on a haptic suit, you could hug somebody in virtual reality on the other side of the world and feel that hug. Let's say you had, let's look at the darker side for a little bit. Let's say you had a relative that passed away, but they yeah. were in this, if you had recorded a virtual reality birthday party from a couple of years ago, um, you recorded that and then you were, you know, you always hear, I just wish I could hug my son or my mum or my dad or whoever it is one more time, there will be technology where you'll be able to do this. So provided the information has been recorded, yes. Um, I can also one-up you. For example, we are already, we're already getting to the point where we can turn people into what we call digital humans. Um, weird fact, there are five Fortune 100 CEOs who are immortalizing immortalizing themselves digitally holy shit that sounds sinister today i can take one minute of your voice and i can clone your voice and your mannerisms secondly using high definition rendering but here i can render your face and i can render your body thirdly using a sort of synthetic media or deep fake like technology i can give your body life fourthly I can use uh, artificial intelligence to create 
what we call a neural network brain for your digital avatar. You can check out a, a, a video on something called Baby X, uh, which will probably freak most people out. Uh, that'll give you a good intro basically into uh, what happens when you give digital avatars and digital humans a neural network brain. Essentially, what happens is when you start combining all these different things together, you have a you have an avatar that you can talk to in natural language that looks like you or whoever you've copied, sounds like you or whoever you've copied, and behaves like you or whoever you've copied. Um, now, where we can start using this basically from a from a, a deceased relative perspective is I, if I can gather enough information about your particular relative, I can combine this information today to create a high resolution digital human of your relative and you can talk to them. Um, so in the US, Tony Robbins basically is actually trying to digitize himself in this way. So you can have, rather than getting hold of him because he, he, he's very difficult to get hold of, you just have a conversation with his digital avatar and his digital avatar has got all of his experience and everything else baked into it. Um, the reason why Fortune, these five Fortune 100 CEOs are trying to immortalize themselves in in a digital avatar form. We're talking about Google and Amazon here. Is that are they are they the ones that are wanting to live forever? Think banks, think right. bank CEOs. Um, so on the one hand, basically they find that these digital avatars are a way to allow future descendants to understand who they were as individuals and actually have conversations with them and give them advice. But then in addition to that, the other reason why they want to immortalize themselves is because they can then start charging themselves out as a service to future boards. Um, so you can imagine, say for, example, in, say, for example, John, the CEO, has died in 20 years time. That's, you know, his company wants to take over another company. Uh, the board can just dial them up and say, John, you know, we're thinking about taking over this company. We know that you had dealings with them during your tenure. Um, what do you think? You know, and he can go, well, I think they're, they're great. You know, go ahead with that. But really, in terms of being able to put together an immortal human, really, I think you're looking at 2060, 2070. And the regulators will have kittens. An immortal human. Yeah. So actually, so if we if we think about it, you're almost talking about something like carbon, uh, like uh, Altered Carbon, the Netflix um, series, as well as uh, Blade Runner uh, 2049. Um, the humans or the synths in Blade Runner's case are actually uh, grown in bags. You know, they're just grown in like sort of big body bags, transparent body bags. About 18 months ago, um, scientists in Europe managed to uh, grow an, a, a lamb ex utero in a plastic bag. They what? They grow a lamb in a plastic bag? Yeah. And so what, th what they did is they took a lamb fetus, basically put it into a, a clear plastic bag that had all of the chemicals and all of the nutrients that you'd normally find in a sheep's uterus. And uh, the lamb developed. And then it actually ended up getting to gestate getting to the point of gestation gosh so from a medical point of view what are the big innovations coming because you talk about creating a person what about 3d printing organs and things like that is that a real thing 
when we have a look at things basically from a from a medical perspective um some of i mean there, there's lots going on basically in the medical world um and when we say lots going on basically we're talking about everything from things like regenerative medicine where we're able to use in one case uh, something called a silk bioreactor which was really a very advanced and sophisticated progesterone cocktail that grew a frog's leg back but um when we look at uh, the ability of humans to regrow limbs uh, Harvard a little while ago discovered uh, that humans actually have the biological capability to regrow limbs, but that genetically it was turned off millions of years ago. Um, so uh, when we start having a look at some of the near term things, uh, for example, when we have a look at cancer, um, there have been two in very interesting break cancer breakthroughs, one in China, which was about a year ago, and another one which actually came out about a month ago from a university over in the US, uh, Rice University, um, where they've developed cancer vaccines. So that's exactly what it sounds like. When we have a look at things like motor neuron disease, basically we've got bioelectronic medicine uh, coming through with companies like GSK. Uh, so that's where we start clipping very small electronic nanomachines onto different neurons and synapses within your body to restore motor function. When we start thinking about some of the more powerful biotechnologies, gene editing, genetic engineering technologies, we are open, on the one hand, we're opening Pandora's box, um, but just using the in vivo gene editing technologies, it's reckoned that you can get rid of over 6,000 currently uncurable genetic diseases. And how far away is all that? Are we talking that's happening in 2070 or is that, is that, is that on the cusp of coming out and getting done now? So, so that's more sort of around 2030, you'll start seeing those actually coming through because they've got to, they've got the technology has got to be perfected. We've got to look at the, the ethical and the moral implications. You know, what happens basically when I edit your genome, you know, okay, you don't have your genetic inherited disease any longer, but do you have something else? We've also basically got to look at things like costs. Um, so for example, the, the first in vivo treatment typically cost about $2.5 million, but that cost will keep coming down. By 2030, we're not talking about widespread. We're talking about, you know, in select cases, people can go in and use these. And then we ramp up from there. You know, you mentioned sort of 3D printing artificial body parts. Um, we recently 3D printed a functioning human mini heart. At a societal level, that means that in the future, if you have a heart attack, you can have a 3D printed heart printed off for you using your own stem cells. So there's no fear of rejection in a hospital, you know, on demand, you no longer have to wait for somebody to die before you can survive. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What, what sort of life expectancy should we be thinking we're going to get now if we're if we're alive now let's say let's say we're mid-30s how, how old do you reckon i'm gonna live a lot of biotech and healthcare companies particularly in europe and uh, the u.s 
um, and now saying basically that they should be able to reach what they call escape velocity. And I'll explain what that means in a moment. Escape velocity in 2028. Now, what I mean by escape velocity in biotech terms is that uh, we should be able to add more than one year's worth of life to you for every year that passes. So in other words, we are now starting, the medical advances that come through after 2028 are now starting to add more life to you for every year that you live. Really, by 2030, we should be on the cusp of getting to the point where someone who's in their 30s now um, should really start thinking about being able to live to about 120 to 150. Now, one of the societal implications of that is if you were going to leave, if you were going to die and then leave your estate to your children, what happens when you now have multiple generations of your children or your great grandchildren alive? So we all of a sudden start changing how you plan your pensions. Um, we start, you know, from a banking perspective, if you're living longer, why not offer a 50 year mortgage? Why a 25 or a 30 year mortgage? Your pension pots are put together based on the premise that you're going to die on average at the age of 84. Let's let's look at a couple of industries and we'll look at them kind of quickly and your thoughts on what's going to happen to that industry in, yeah. the, in the short, medium, long term. The right. first one that I want to look at is the agricultural industry. The way that we produce food is being fundamentally changed by new advanced technologies. Um, there are two sort of main areas that we look at. So when we have a look at crops, um, rather than growing crops in fields, you can put them into a vertical farm. So in the UK, for example, the Cardo have recently invested about $15 million, basically, in a vertical farm company. Um, what that fundamentally means is that I no longer need farm, I no longer need farmers with pasture or farms because I can now grow lettuce and a whole variety of different vegetable and crops um, in my warehouse. So when you have a look at the growth of vertical farms, bearing in mind that vertical farms use up to 99% less water, no pesticides, herbicides or chemicals. So the fruit, the produce is completely organic. They can produce eight crops a year. Um, and then you can pack them into very, very dense uh, warehouses. Amazon and Walmart, if you order something from Amazon Fresh in California, it's coming out of a warehouse, not a farmer's field. When we have a look at meat, though, because, you know, you fancy your meat, you know, we talk, we, we hear a lot of people talking about everyone having to switch to vegetarian or vegetable based diets because uh, raising cattle is just fundamentally environmentally unsustainable, killing the planet. Um, agriculture accounts for about 20 to 23% of all greenhouse gas emissions today. What I can do basically is using a technology called a bioreactor. I can take one cell from a chicken feather, chicken called Ian. So if you think about chickens, they already contain everything that you need to create more chickens. If you can figure out how to control that process and produce a good chicken nugget, um, all of a sudden, the only chicken on the planet that I need is Ian the chicken. I take one cell from Ian the chicken, I, re I reproduce and replicate that ad infinitum. Now I can uh, use a bioreactor to create a chicken nugget. And this isn't like meat. It's not 
artificial meat. It's not synthetic meat. It is meat because it's grown from biological, genuine biological cells. Wow. Let's look at sport. Mm. Because we've seen the development of the e-games and e-sport and uh, all that kind of thing. But how in the coming years is sport going to change? And we're talking about the next sort of 5, 10, 20, 30, 70 years. Yeah. Are we going to be playing everything online? Yeah. Um, no, so there's, there's always going to be a place basically for, for physical sport. Um, but when you have a look at sport, basically there's a whole variety of different things changing. So um, on the one hand, basically when we have a look at physical sports, you know, rugby, you know, cricket, football, you know, American football, all these kinds of things, swimming, um, cycling, um, increasingly we are we're wearing more and more smart devices, so smart watches and everything else that are able to give us information on our uh, on our on ourselves. Um, so we call it the quantified self. This is where you know everyone knows this already. Um, but this is where I'm taking your heart rate, measuring your cortisol and stress levels. I'm increasingly, as sensors themselves start getting more and more sensitive, uh, I'll be able to analyze your blood at the biological and chemical level or biochemical level um, so that I can really understand basically how your physiology is reacting to the training that you're actually going through. In addition to that, we're starting to see neurotechnologies creeping in. So the US Olympic team a little while ago uh, started using some of these uh, brain, brain machine interfaces as well as neural tech. They're called TPS machines. Um, to start helping them uh, brain train themselves. Now, what I mean by that is when you have a look at the US ski team, the US ski team was able to improve their performance by over 20% because they used neural technologies to essentially do brain training. And you know, anyone that's involved with sports, I'm, I'm, I've used to be a personal trainer, knows that uh, on the one hand, basically you can teach people the right form, but a lot of what we see in sports is mental, it's visualization. When you're doing your training, if you're able to visualize your training, whether you're, whether you're in a virtual reality rig, for example, that they're already using in uh, Olympic sports like uh, the UK uh, cycling team, uh, as well as Formula One, you, know, you can use virtual reality now to go around the twists and turns of that Formula One circuit and because your brain, because your eyes are seeing it and your brain is seeing it, and you're mm. being subjected to different G-forces because the simulation feels relatively real, you are now, your performance is now better tuned to when you get onto that track to do that race in real, you know, for real. Um, when we have a look at traditional physical sports, though, we're also incorporating more sensors into sports equipment. So think about your. Uh, your Gilbert um, rugby ball, uh, it's got sensors in it so that we know, you know, how far it's been kicked, who kicked it, how hard they kicked it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We're embedding sensors into particularly elite sportsmen's, sportsmen and women's uh, clothing so that we can measure respiration rates, heart rates and all these kinds of things. Um, using artificial intelligence again and using this information, we can figure that uh, using these smart clothes you are starting to get exhausted. Therefore, we will substitute you 20 minutes before we were originally going to, and we'll put someone else on so that we can change our strategy and up our game. Um, when we have a look at esports as well, increasingly we're seeing esports gamers 
being trained by artificial intelligence. So recently we had AIs from Google, DeepMind, and a couple of other artificial intelligence organizations. Um, everyone will know about the Go champion, that uh, the Chinese Go champion a little while ago that got defeated by AlphaGo, which is Google DeepMind's artificial intelligence. Um, but those AIs have also beaten people at StarCraft, Dota 2, um, chess, a whole variety of different board games. And um, those AIs that beat humans, including beating humans at poker, uh, which is a game of bluff, um, those AIs that were used to beat some of the world's top experts, whether it's esports experts or just gaming experts, are now starting to be used to help them train better. There's this interesting mix now of, on the one hand, artificial intelligence is increasingly capable of beating people at particular sports and games because it can run hundreds of millions of simulations to train itself. Mm -hmm. um, Alpha, Alpha Zero from DeepMind actually taught itself chess. Right. It wasn't taught by a human. They are self-learning AIs now. Then in addition to that, when we actually have a look at, the, at how games are being put together, we've also got AIs that are building what we call procedural games. So from an esports perspective, we can have some of the world's top human gamers now going against some of the world's top artificial intelligence opponents. And then we can also have artificial intelligence creating games on the fly that are different every time. When we bring, when we start combining the two, I can now change how you play rugby for real. Um, so if I put you into a, a haptic suit, like a Tesla suit, and I gave you a, a traditional rugby ball, connected you over a 5G network, you can now tackle someone in New Zealand, um, or you can tackle a tackle bag in New Zealand that's loaded with sensors. And that tackle is then felt and transmitted to a person in the UK. So if someone goes and tackles a tackle bag and that tackle bag is full of sensors and they're wearing a haptic suit um, and the other person in the UK is wearing a haptic suit, then when the person in New Zealand tackles that bag, the person in London gets knocked off their feet. Let's look at social media because that's something that everyone's on, most people are on. Facebook, what's happening with those guys? They look like they're taking over the world. Is, is that the case? Are they going to be more powerful than the United States? What's what's going on there? Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, so uh, so when you look at Facebook, so Facebook now has what two point two billion people. Um, so uh, weird fact, basically, on the one hand, Mark Zuckerberg is trying to turn Facebook into the world's first telepathic social network, where you just think and you can connect with other people, engage other with other people and all sorts of other things. And he's doing that using uh, non-invasive brain machine uh, interface technology. When you have a look at Facebook, basically in terms of its political power, um, if I asked you this question, you know, who's the most powerful person on the planet today? You know, is it Donald Trump? Is it President Z? Or is it Mark Zuckerberg? Um, the traditional answer is going to be it Donald Trump because he's the president of the US uh, of the US still. Um, however, um, he only oversees what 360 million Americans. Mark Zuckerberg oversees 2.2 billion people. You know, Z overwatches or watches over 1.2 billion people. And to put this into context, what we mean by power, 
is increasingly you can look at platforms like Facebook as their own virtual nations. And what we mean by a virtual nation is this, and this is the power and the potential that these virtual nations actually have. Um, if I'm Mark Zuckerberg, um, I could actually say to you, I tell you what, uh, if you come and you're, you become part of my platform, my virtual nation, I will give you access to free education free healthcare, I will give you tax breaks, I will allow you to create e-companies that can trade cross-border, whatever it happens to be. When we have a look at the rate of adoption of different technologies throughout time, uh, it took 75 years for 50 million people to adopt the telephone. It took 19 days for 15 million people to adopt and download uh, Pokemon Go. It took six days for 100 million people to download the Call of Duty. So, as the world becomes more digital and more connected, my ability to disrupt the world at global scale incredibly quickly accelerates exponentially. Um, so with Facebook, um, Libra basically was a cryptocurrency that was made up of a bunch of different money uh, categories. So it was made up of, of dollars and pounds and euros and one and all sorts of things. Had Libra been released to the Facebook platform in its entirety, you could have had half a billion people using Libra on the first day. You could have potentially had 2 billion people using Libra on the day one. You could certainly have had 100 to 200 to 300 million people using Libra day one in the first few hours. Libra was such a disruptive technology that the Chinese People's Bank of China, the US Federal Reserve, the UK Bank of England, as well as the European Central Bank, all went on public record and said that it was such a powerful innovation, it could have ended state control of money. In other words, the central banks of governments, the world's largest governments, would have lost control of money. These technology companies, or really just platform companies, um, are now starting to set the scene globally. Now, think of it like this. If you have a look at Google, the only reason why we now have the emergence of fully autonomous vehicles is because Google started developing them. Um, when you have a look at Tesla, um, the reason why we have the electrification of the transport industry, it's because of Tesla. If I asked you today, who could be more effective, say, for example, at solving climate change? Um, all of the world's governments who are voted in for a period of four years have their own particular political agendas and have their own things to fight about and their own individual agendas um, or a private company. If Google's CEO or Alphabet's CEO decided that they really wanted to move the dial on climate change, they don't have to seek the permission of mm. governments. They can just do it. If governments didn't have regulation in their arsenal, they would be walked over very, very soon, if not already, by these companies. I'm going to finish off. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list off a few TV shows, and I want you to give me a quick answer on the likelihood of whether that movie will happen in the future, whether it's happening now or, or, or why. First one, obviously, Terminator. 
Okay, so with Terminator, basically we already have the ability to 3D print human artificials, human skin over a metal endoskeleton. Uh, we have the US military who are creating an artificial intelligence platform that can identify chaos around the world called Kairos, which is your version of Skynet. Um, we have researchers over in China, as well as America, who've created polymorphic metals. So that's the T-1000 that uh, morphs. We've already got the development of liquid computers, so liquid computer chips and liquid storage. So that's your T-1000 again. Um, and then as for the traditional Terminator robot played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, we've got the Atlas robot basically made by Boston Dynamics, uh, which is the world's most advanced humanoid robot. And then uh, if you connect a whole bunch of robots together in with the cloud and combine them with artificial intelligence, you have a hive mind network because one robot learns one thing and it can transmit it to the rest of the herd, uh, so to speak. And we've already done that with Google in the labs uh, as well as elsewhere. So it's happening. Real. The Matrix. So the Matrix happening. Um, so increasingly, if you wanted to, you could live in, in a virtual reality world. Um, we have a way to turn humans into batteries using something called nano generator technology. That's where we can literally put nano generators basically into your bloodstream and you turn into a human battery. Uh, and then as for uploading and downloading knowledge, we did that two to three years ago, as we've discussed. Black Mirror. I mean, there's a lot of technology in there. Yeah. So, yeah, that's so that a lot of that is actually based on um, a lot of the observations that they see coming through from futurists like myself. Um, but uh, if we have a look at Black Mirror, there was a an episode basically where a lady was refused board um, was refused entry onto a train um, uh, because she didn't have the right credit score. So in China, we have the development of the social credit scoring system, whereas if you're not a good citizen, i.e. if you litter, if you're a criminal, if you vote for the wrong people, um, your credit score gets hit. And if your credit score hits a particular point, and we've already seen this in China, you are you are banned from different public services like transportation, financial services, healthcare services, broadband and internet services. So yeah, Black Mirror generally basically is happening. Inception. We can, we, we've got technologies that allow us to read and translate people's dreams basically into visualizations. Um, in terms of being able to go in and, and uh, influence people's dreams and step through their dreams, we did create a biological hive mind construct with rats. So there was a rat in South America, a rat in the US, and they were connected together using brain machine interfaces in the internet to create an organic hive mind. Um, it's not a huge leap to go from there to an inception style technology. So at the moment, um, it's kind of no, but we do see a pathway to inception becoming real. And finally, uh, a movie series, Back to the Future, time travel. Tell me about it. So in 2021, we've actually got a new DeLorean coming through. Um, they haven't sort of shown off their uh, prototypes yet. But uh, when we start talking about time travel, we have a theoretical physicist who created a mathematical model basically for time travel. The only thing that we don't have when it comes to time travel basically is exotic materials, which is rather convenient. Um, and uh, no one who's involved in the time travel spec sector has been able to uh, tell us what exotic materials you would need. So um, that said, though, we do have some exotic and weird materials like living materials coming through and all that sort of stuff. Can auto cannibalistic materials that cannibalize themselves coming through as well. So that's always a weird area. Right. Um, 
But when we have a look at um, time travel, we don't have the flux capacitor, but we do increasingly uh, look like we have mini fusion reactors coming through. Um, and we have got a DeLorean. So if you combine a fusion reactor basically with a DeLorean, uh, with a theoretical physicist, then hey, why not? How long until we can time travel? Oh, well, uh, being a time traveling futurist myself, I can't tell you because that would break the, uh, the protocol. Um, but I can tell you, basically, we'll probably be in the next few centuries. Right. That's it, but uh, don't tell anyone else. <laughs> Matthew Griffin, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I, I would say best of luck for the future, but you probably don't need it because you know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Andy. Cheers, everyone. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to hit subscribe. And if you'd like to leave a review, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.